This sermon, God's Unyielding Work, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, July 3rd, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, that would be back to Antioch, when they had completed their service, beginning, uh, excuse me, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting, they, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. I don't know if that's Greek. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, so there's your Spanish for the day. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately the mist, and immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed and he when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the lord let's pray together you may be seated lord we sang these words earlier and it's my prayer even now open our eyes so that we may be able to see And open our ears so that we may be able to hear your word. Change us from this day forward all the more. Jesus, be exalted at the preaching of your word. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I snagged the following from a brief I snagged the following brief from a British Imperial War Museum site. The Blitz, from the German term Blitzkrieg, meaning lightning war, 
was a sustained campaign of aerial bombings on British towns and cities carried out by the German Air Force from September 1940 until May 1941. The Blitz began on September 7th, Black Saturday, when German, German soldiers, German bombers, attacked London, leaving 430 dead and 1,600 injured. London was then bombed for 57 consecutive nights. And often during the daytime, too, London experienced regular attacks, and on the 10th and 11th of May, 1941, was hit with its biggest raid. German bombers dropped 711 tons of high explosive and 2,393 incendiaries, and 1,436 civilians were killed. These raids ceased after this for about a year and a half. While London was bombed more heavily and more often than anywhere else in Britain, the Blitz was an attack on the whole country. Very few areas were left untouched by the air raids. In these nine months, over 43,500 civilians were killed. Five months later, on October 29, 1941, while the war with Germany raged on, Prime Minister Churchill spoke to the boys' school of Harrow. It's a boarding school that he had attended when he was about 13 years old. In his speech, Churchill famously told these boys, but for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in. I always thought that speech was spoken to the country, the nation of England. He spoke that to a group of boys at a boarding school. Now it goes down in famous history in World War II. Never give in. Churchill touches on something that is true. We so desire to persevere and not give up, to not give in, and that we would never yield. Yet weakness plagues us, doesn't it? At times we want to do exactly the opposite. We're tempted to give in. When faced with an unrelenting attack, devastating grief, mounting sorrows, persistent pain, Failure after failure, loss after loss, fear upon fear, anxiety upon anxiety. It seems too difficult, and we may just give up. But, church, be encouraged. Today's text, be truly encouraged, because our text today preaches an amazing, great truth. The unyielding work of God is the salvation of his people and our exaltation of Jesus. He does this through the local church and nothing is going to stop it. Nothing will stop it. The unyielding work of God is the salvation of his people and then our exaltation of Jesus through the local church and nothing 
will stop it. Look with me, if you would, again at verse 2. There's a simple statement in there, and I'm going to pick that one up and let it begin to help us summarize the rest of this message. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The work that I have called them. Be looking at three main points. God's work. God's work. God's work. God's work through the local church. God's work opposed. God's work unyielding. Oh, I can't wait to point three for sure. God's work unyielding. Well, here we are in point one. God's work through the local church. Verses one through five would be that first group that we're looking at. God's work in the local church. The Holy Spirit is the one initiating this mission. And he is the one empowering this mission. He does this in and through the local church. And there is no way around this as we continue on through this book that uh, Luke writes. Part two to his gospel, he writes Acts. I've heard over the years that there are times in Scripture where there is a a hinge in the text and it swings. It's a major turning moment for the message. Major turning moment in the letter. And every time you read the scriptures, you're going to find that there is a text that emerges as like a huge text and it swings. And what's interesting is every time we've been preaching so far through the book of Acts, it's almost as if we're at this major hinge beginning to swing again. Well, lately, what we've come into, particularly in chapter 12, in the last couple of chapters, is the gospel is going to advance across the face of the planet now to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles. And that's a major hinge that this letter hinges on. And believe it or not, in our text today, there is another massive part of this hinge. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the hinge just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The message of the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. It goes to them through God's work in a local church in Antioch. A local church in Antioch. Last week's sermon out of Matthew 28, we saw that when God invades the world with the glory of Christ, he begins and ends with the local church. It is true and it is clear again in today's text. God's work in glorifying Jesus is done through his local church. Let's just consider two things revealed in what I'll look at now. We're going to take this one through five. We're going to condense it a little bit and look at verses one through three. Let's read together verses one through three. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the word of the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here are the two major things for me that emerged out of this. One is certainly the church. That would be like the overarching theme of this. But in verse two is this church, this local church was dependent on God. They were praying, they were worshiping, they were fasting. They were dependent upon the Lord. Not only were they dependent, they were obedient. This is not Jonah's story. 
It's not like they were praying and fasting and the Holy Spirit appears on the scene and says, now I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul and send them out. And I'm like, no way are we going to do that. No, immediately they pray all the more, lay their hands on them, and they send them out. The church worshiped, prayed fast, and were obedient. They sent out church planters. You're going to see throughout Acts, and we're going to keep repeating this, church planting, church planting, church planting. And all of this is how God's work is evident and experienced in the local church. There are real men. I love this band of men that are mentioned in the text, summarized under prophets and teachers. We have Barnabas and Simeon, who is also called Niger. He's a black guy. And we also have Lucius of Cyrene, another black guy. Then we have a member of Herod's uh, court. (laughs) That, to me, is hysterical. Herod is not necessarily a believer. That's an understatement, by the way. And here we have one of his members of his court is present. And then we have Saul, 12 years later after his conversion. Original persecutor of the church is now with this team of men. We also find out, in addition to this team, another guy joins them in a little bit, John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Likely at this time, a young man. What a team. What a group of church planners. And drilling down a little bit more in the text, we have verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, so being sent by the Holy Spirit, certainly see God's initiative. They went down to Selo, uh, Sela Usia, and <laughs> that, guy, that place right there, that one. Um, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and then they arrived in Salima, or Salamis. <laughs> Oh, the Lord is so kind to me. Humility comes in many forms. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Um, They had John to assist them. And then they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. Well, here we have verse 4. God sends them. They're dependent. They're obedient. But God is initiator. He calls them out. And he puts them on this mission. Now, if you would do a a favor for me. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, now if you're using your phone, you need to go home and get out your map. But this is one of the good things about having this. I'm super visual in my learning. And you're going to see in one title, The Missionary Journeys of Paul, this is not the inspired word, by the way, this is a map that's been inserted for us, is an Antioch over on the far east side of the map. You're going to see Antioch. And a solid line usually, but it could be a dotted line in years. And if you follow that on the legend, you're going to see the first missionary journey. It literally, the gospel through this local church given to church planters is sent from Antioch to a coastal city, Seleucia, sent there. They get on a boat. They ride across the Mediterranean to Salamis, and then they travel across Paphos, declaring what the word refers to three different times in the text, the word of God, the word of God, the teaching of the Lord. It's shorthand for the gospel. These men are dependent on the Lord. This church is dependent. They're obedient to God to send them. God sends them on this mission, and you can trace it on a map. This will become a little bit more evident to us a little bit later, but this is also why it's good the men gave us real places. This is not a made-up story. Real men, real places, in real time. They proclaimed, not only were they sent by God, 
but they proclaim the word of God. So God gives them the mission, but God also gives them the message, the good news of Jesus. So they are taking with them from town to town, from place to place, the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus, the good news that Christ has come to save the world. They're taking the Jewish Messiah and delivering him safely in a message that he has now come, Jesus, the Savior, the promised Holy One has come. And they go from town to town, street to street, from boat to boat. So consider for a moment a few questions as we seek to, well, what does this mean to us? Like, so, okay, we, we get it. We get the facts of this. Well, one is, do you see God's work now? Do you see it like this now? Can you map it out in that sense now? Well, consider for a moment how we can map this out. Start with the precious people in this local church. God is advancing the glory of Christ throughout the earth, through a local church. I can tell you from my own personal perspective what this local church is doing because I've seen it. I've beheld it. I've talked to you all. Many of you. You know, as we faced the grief over the loss of our grandson recently, do you know what emerged? Evidence of a local church, of people that love us dearly, but better than that would take us to Christ for our help and our hope and our encouragement. The Arondas delivered way more food than we needed and delivered it with encouragement as Don himself racked with pain, hiding not long after serious surgery along with their kids, carried in piles of food into our home and encouraged us towards Christ. John Hahn called me. I'm going to tell you what John Hahn said, and I didn't ask for his permission. He said, Tom, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I immediately, I interrupted him so he didn't get to say what he wanted to say. I said, John, the fact that you called me meant the world. Do you see God's work in the gospel in this church? We do. I'll bet you do now that you know what I'm doing. I've clued you in on how to do this. Consider the evidences of grace, God at work in other people as Julie Frank reached out to Lisa. Took her out for food. Wept with her and encouraged her. Julie, thank you. Thank you. We can map this out. There are real places, real streets you all drove down. How about the preached word? Do you behold it in the preached word? You know, for me, personally, I can tell you that Derek's words in messages, as he's preached faithfully, very clearly, the word emerging out of it is it doesn't matter what comes God's gospel advances. What a great message for me to hear from God's word, and it is in the preached word. Tim, in the middle of this latest series, talks about getting this to the non-believer. I desperately needed it. The mission goes on. It goes on. It goes on. 
Do you have eyes searching for evidence of his grace at work in this church? Here's another question. Are we willing to do God's work when he calls? I'll say something in a minute. I'm going to be real careful with it because I don't want to put any ungodly pressure on any man present. But I believe that it is safe to say that God will continue just like in this local church at Antioch. He's going to continue to raise up men in his local church and set them apart and send them on the mission. He is at work right now working and shape working on and shaping your character, man. I'm going to try to avoid looking at anybody cuz I don't again, I don't want there to be any ungodly pressure. And by the way, he's given you like the perfect wife to make this happen. You thought you were good to go and then you got married and you realized I'm not good to go and she is a good reminder. I needed help. The Lord has given you an amazing help to shape you into the man he's called you to be, to go and preach, to go and further the mission. And he's put you in this local church by design. He's put you near other men who will call you in the midst of difficulty like John Hahn who's going to help shape you and make you the man that he's making you to send you on his mission. Stretching and growing your mind and soul by his word, making you ready to rightly handle his word and also proclaim his word, his gospel. So for you, man, are you willing to submit your will? Are you willing to submit your will to his calling and obey him when he calls? We're praying for you. Finally, on application, do we really believe that the local church is God's foundational means of carrying out his gospel work in the world? Now, maybe this was like an easy one to answer. Well, of course it's the local church. The reason I ask is because sometimes I think we have a diminishing view of the local church through seasons. We forget that every moment that this church is alive, God is at work in every believer present for the purpose of changing and shaping us so that we'll turn, in turn glorify him, worship him, and train others up to go and just start other churches. It is his way of doing this. There is no other way that God has decided to do this. It is a curious way to me. Through the fallible church, men and women, who are going to break things and kick things and bite each other at times, devour each other at times, get in conflict with one another. It's shocking that he does it, but he does it. So do you value the local church to the extent that you see it as a primary means of, one, your faith growing, but also for the future expansion of the message of Jesus to go where it's going to go? In our sphere of future considerations, how close, so when you think about your future, how close to the center of your thinking is the local church, Sovereign Grace Church? 
Well, we have considered God's gospel work in and through the local church. Now, let's look at his work that is always opposed, God's work opposed. I'm going to try to speed things up. Verses 6 through 8 are that section as we look together at verse 6. It opens up, and we'll read along this. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. And before I go any further, this, in my mind, this feels like just when the disciples get to the shore with Jesus and they get out of the boat, they're met with a demoniac. This has a similar feel to me. They arrived, they finally, after all this gospel work, you know it was hard for them. They've worked their way through this island of Paphos, not a big town, but from synagogue to synagogue. And I'm sure there's opposition of various kinds, but this one makes it into the Lord's word. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish, not my buddy Matthew, who lives in the Philippines, who's a godly man. This is a different kind of magician that we're going to find out. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He's described later as Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name. We know a little bit later in the rebuke that comes from the Lord that he is the son of the devil. It's not just foul language in the scripture. It's worse than that. The description of this man is he is a magician, he is a false prophet, but he's not like a little bad. He's like the worst kind. He is given over to the occult. And knowing the times is this governor, this proconsul, has this man, he's a smart guy, but he has this man near him to give him insight into the spiritual world as he tries to lead the governance or to govern this island. This guy's a bad dude. God's work in verses 6 with a little bit of definition coming out of verse 10 is it's opposed by this false prophet. This guy casting spells, incantations, it's all there. Look, we tried to raise our kids good and tell them not to read Harry Potter, but they did it again later anyway. That's all humor in our family, by the way. If you're wondering about that, now if you're a parent and your kids are like, oh, I want to read Harry Potter, I'm just saying, I agree with you not letting them read. Just read this scripture and I'll let you deal with the consequences later of my legalism over this matter. But back to the word. If Satan was going to have a voice into a man's life, it was through this kind of guy to this governor. Maybe it's a better way to say it. I should have just said that, not all these other things. More useless information. Here we go. Verse 7. So not only is his work opposed by the false prophet, it's opposed at a personal level. He was with this proconsul. The man desires to hear the word of God, we know from the text, and the false prophet will not have it. So not only is his nature a demonic influence over the man, it's a, it's a demonic barrier for the man. It's like, nope. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. I'm sure he's hearing us go. The word is spreading about Jesus. There's no way to stop it. And Satan hates this. And so he becomes a personal barrier. Verse 8 is, it's not just personal. It's also corporate. The magician opposed them. So not only is he a barrier for this guy, like, we don't want you guys to say anything. He is set against them. He's set against you. The enemy is set against 
the church. It's personal, but it's also corporate. False prophet confronts the evangelists directly, being against them and all their efforts to proclaim the message of Jesus. Now look, I have received opposition in the declaration of the gospel, and there was opposition, but I was unaware of what actually is happening in the spiritual realm. What's happening when we deliver the gospel and someone interrupts the delivery of the gospel to get us to shut up, to stop talking about it, and to move on, it's this going on. Satan's goal is to oppose Jesus himself. Verse 8 continues to help us. Satan seeks to turn the governor away from the faith. We get to hear those words in there, but the point is, it's not just he just wants to keep him to himself, which I'm sure is making him some money. We know that from the commentaries. But we know worse. Satan hates Jesus, and he's turning him away from Jesus. The action is confrontational in nature. It's satanic in its opposition, and it simply is not coming alongside to water down the message a little bit about Jesus which is one of his strategies, the message of Jesus itself is under attack. There is no easy way around this. So on an airplane flight, I'll try to say this quickly, on an airplane flight, this was about 10 years ago, the young lady sat next to me and her college roommate sits across the aisle. I got on late, Southwest, thank you. I sit in the middle, and so here comes this young lady, and I'm just sitting there, and we're on the way, I'm on the way back to El Paso, I'm preparing for a message, I have my Bible open, And um, this young lady immediately asks, are you a pastor? And have you ever had to try a quiet conversation on a plane? It doesn't happen. Have you ever had to have a quiet conversation with me? (laughs) Lisa would say, it doesn't happen. So, but I try to restrain myself so she can hear me and we began to talk. Basically, she has strayed from the Lord once she got into college. And she sees the Bible and she actually, she asked me, and within minutes, she's crying as I tell her what Jesus said, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way. So I just encouraged her in Christ. And within seconds, her friend across the aisle said, that is so wrong, and began to say, stop listening to him. She just ignored me, looked at her friend, stop listening to him. What he's saying is wrong. Jesus is not the only way. There are many ways to God. It went on and on and on. So I just leaned forward and I said, your argument's not with me. It's with Jesus himself. Satan's argument is with Jesus himself. Well, there's no question it's against Jesus himself. From the text, turning away from faith in Jesus, the promised one of Israel, the Messiah, the promised Savior is the goal. This has that feeling in the text where uh, Peter has come along Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 23. Peter basically tells Jesus, you're not going to be killed. Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're a roadblock to me. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. John 8, we hear something similar in 8, 43 and 44. 
Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus says? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. I didn't think we needed application for that point. God's word is carried out and moved forward through the earth, through the local church. God's word is opposed, but the glorious hope is that we now see in verses 9 through 12, God's work is unyielding. The unyielding work of the Holy Spirit empowers the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Saul, now called Paul. Let's read together 9, verses 9 through 12. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The proconsul believed. And when he saw what, he had, what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God's work is un yielding. God disposes of the opposition to his work and he moves in power against Satan directly and his representatives in a divine sense. It's as if God raises his voice in a moment and says, never, 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 never. God is unyielding in his work, unyielding to the opposition, God and God then also stands up a man, Saul, and announces, and this is where the hinge swings all the more widely. He stands this man, Saul, up by filling him with the Holy Spirit and calls him out now by his Greek name. And before we even hear Paul utter a word, we are told emphatically, nothing will stop my work of salvation in Jesus Christ, and it will go to the ends of the earth through my man that I have called to preach to the Gentiles, Saul, who is now Paul, are not just simple descriptive words of Saul. The Lord is announcing something that makes it clear he is relentless in his getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Verses 9, the Holy Spirit fills and empowers Paul to stand down Satan. Verse 10, God judges the magician and not the other way around. Verse 11, God blinds the false prophet in utter darkness. If we look at some of the original language, it means he's blind, blind, blind. Darkness sets on him. He cannot even see the sun. This isn't cataracts. This isn't some shapes maybe. He sees utter darkness. But you know what's shocking about this? And I'm surprised by this. You be surprised by this as well. Look at verse 11. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Mercy is present in the midst of God's judgment on this man. For a time, 
he's blinded. And then he goes about asking for help, asking to be led by the hand. He's left alive. He's blinded only temporarily, and he's left alive. What should have occurred in the text is he should have been incinerated by the power of the Spirit present. He should have fallen dead like Ananias and Sapphira immediately, and he did. He's given mercy. We don't know what's happened to him in the future, but each of the commentaries I read said, who knows? What do we know about salvation? Well, we do know this about salvation as we consider this, that it is nothing but undeserved grace the man gets. The opposition might one day believe in Jesus. Think of the guy standing and calling him out and standing down Satan. He would have been ravaging the church if it were not for Christ showing him mercy. Saul himself should have been incinerated, and he wasn't. He describes himself as one untimely born, like a baby who came early. The Lord suddenly saves him. So we want application here. Here's the application. God, at times, spares the worst of sinners, judging them now, but not finally, afflicting them now, but only temporary. Both are accomplished. The opposition is destroyed, and the unyielding work of God is put away. And the unyielding work of God puts away evil. The unyielding work of God saves. So we're suddenly now at this text of verse 12. This man who is now blinded, he's going about gropingly in the hand. And then the proconsul believed, this is the very next phrase. The proconsul believed God's work in salvation is not delayed, it is not deterred, it is not put on hold, it's perfectly timed. There is no divine anxiety, no slowing down, no speeding up. It will not be rescheduled through opposition. His work of salvation, though it seems at times to be hindered, is delivered unhindered faithfully on the server, on the center that he is seeking to save. There is no hiccup. There is no bump in the road. There is no skid marks at the advance of the gospel. There is no backpedaling. There is no rethinking nor going back to the drawing board about this. We need to think about this again. God does not, in his unrelenting, unyielding work of salvation, does not have a plan B. God's unyielding work of salvation is the only plan, and it is divinely carried out in absolute divine perfection. There is nothing in all of heaven nor creation that was going to stop God and his gracious saving of Sergius. The beginning of the man's salvation is he sent out for these men so that they could hear, so that he could hear the word of God. God so loved Sturgis that he sent his one and only son. If you're here this morning and have not believed in Christ, consider what God has done for this man. He has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save Sturgis, that very message Sturgis is wanting to hear. The very message Sturgis does hear and believe. Jesus bore God's wrath for Sturgis. Jesus came to save Sergius. Jesus bore God's wrath for him. Sorry, I read that line twice. Jesus laid down his life and was crucified for Sergius. Jesus was buried in the tomb and raised himself on the third day for Sergius. 
Jesus ascended into heaven and is now at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven on earth. Verse 10, the governor's false prophet is silenced. The enemy of righteousness, the deceit, the wickedness is gone. God takes Sergius from the crooked path and places him on the straight path to the Lord. <laughs> a gracious and unyielding work of God in Sergius' life saves him. He sees these miracles, these miraculous works, and he's astonished at the message of Jesus. And so he believes. Believe in Christ and be saved. You may have heard it again and again and again. There might be a young man or young lady present. You've grown up hearing this stuff. But like me, you need to hear it. Like, really hear it. Believe in Christ. And you'll find his unyielding power is at work in you. You know, you and I can take our Bibles again. Let's look at that map. There is a line that goes from Antioch to the coast. And there is a line that goes from the coast out to the island. And there's a line that goes out across that island, but yet it advances unstoppable up into the other southern part of Galatia. Paul will write in a year to the Galatians how quickly you have turned away. You've been bewitched by another gospel. This gospel is advancing, and it's going to advance Across the face of the earth. You know where it's going to advance to? It's going to advance to El Paso. It's going to advance to Tucson. Have you believed in Christ in this church? Well, your line is drawn on this map. Consider that for a moment as you consider the marvelous work of salvation for this governor of this island. His marvelous work of salvation has been drawing that dark blue line or red, whatever color it is in your Bible, straight to Tucson. Over the last 2,000 years plus, that work has been continuing. If we read at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, that line started to be drawn in eternities past before time began to come all the way to you. But he didn't come just to you. He came to us, this church, and saved us. Church, that blue line makes it its way straight to this city, straight to Sovereign Grace Church, to us. Our redemptive history can specifically be mapped out. Get your GPS out, retrace it, get your hiking GPS and go after it. Together we've been found by the grace of God, sought out by the grace of God, and saved by the grace of God, and there was no way that we could lift the pen from the page as God drew that map to us. The unyielding work of God in salvation is his salvation of his people and our exaltation of Jesus as we worship him for doing that through this local church and there is nothing that can stop it. Now consider this for application. Drawing from implications from the text, meaning this is not specifically in the text, but the implication of the text is certainly this. If God's gospel work is unyielding while under the direct assault of the enemy, then his work will not yield to sin and temptation. His work will not yield to trials and suffering. 
It won't. Nothing will stop it. You and I, we feel like the whole world stops. When we were in the hallway with Scotty holding little Everett, it felt like the whole world stopped. It did not stop. It did not stop. His work will not stop. What keeps assaulting your faith? Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me, and let's read together God's word. What then, verse 8, chapter 31 in Romans, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but give him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that's going to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No, never. Or distress? Or persecution? Never. Famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Never. As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are like regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, never. In all these things we are moved, excuse me, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His work will not yield to anything.